0: Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chczeski-K. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We will touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning,
1: artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about statistics from Super Bowl 53, um, in both senses of the word bowl, the game, as well as if people are eating during the game. And then we talk about a fun activity on confidence intervals, and we end with a discussion of where to find some really nifty data sets for your favorite data analysis project.
0: Let's get started. Super Bowl fifty three took place recently. Um, Susan, did you watch the game at all?
1: I didn't, and to be honest, I didn't even know it was Super Bowl number fifty three. So that's how embarrassing I am. But I did do my part to celebrate in the way that most people do with lots and lots of food. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yeah, so that is great. Um, yeah, so um, Super Bowl fifty-three had the Los Angeles Rams playing the New England Patriots. Um, the Patriots' quarterback um, Tom Brady had his um, ninth Super Bowl appearance at this game, and um, the the Patriots won, which made it his sixth Super Bowl win.
1: Which wow, is that's what, very
0: fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a, not too bad for a one hundred and ninety-ninth overall pick in the sixth round. Of the 2000 NFL draft, uh, but I, I have to admit, um, Super Bowl 51, so two years ago, with the Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons, um, that was just one of the greatest athletic events I have ever watched. It was uh, also probably the first Super Bowl I ever really paid attention to.
1: So, being the um, the Super Bowl noob that I am, set the scene for me. What happened in Super Bowl 51? <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. Okay. So um, the Patriots were down 21 to three at halftime. Um, It was then 28 to nine after the third quarter. And then the Patriots got a field goal. So that's three points around the 10 minute mark. And then with about six minutes left in the game, so six minutes, the score was still 28 to 12. And the Patriots actually came back to tie the game 28 to 28. And then the Patriots won in overtime, thirty-four to twenty-eight.
1: Wow, that's quite the comeback! It's it's always exciting when the game goes to overtime. Um, I suppose only if you're not rooting for one team in particular. If you are rooting for any one of the teams, it's probably really agonizing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, but it was yeah, it was just
0: a remarkable game, and uh, I, I've intended to watch it again since um, since I saw it last. But um, I have not watched it again yet, but um, so anyway, Super Bowl 53. <laughs> while, uh, while football is, many would consider the main attraction, um, food is also a big part of the Super Bowl. So do you have any favorite sports snacks?
1: Um, buffalo wings are kind of my favorite. They're just so good. What about you? <laughs> uh,
0: I would have to say nachos. I generally do enjoy some good nachos. Well, um, Drovers actually put out an article before the Super Bowl, and um, it was on Super Bowl food statistics for 2019. So they had a bunch of estimates um, for what they were expecting um, people to consume of the different types of food. So you were um, in good company with, in terms of chicken wings, because they were estimating that there would be 1.3 billion chicken wings consumed. Um, and this comes from the National Chicken Council, Um, they noted that that's enough to put 640 wings on every seat in all 31 NFL stadiums, or could think of it in terms of per person, um, four wings for every man, woman, and child in the United States.
1: Wow. I actually almost misheard you there, Jesse. I thought for a second you meant every person in the stadium watching the Super Bowl would be eating 640 wings. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's still a lot of wings <laughs> 4 <laughs> wings per person. Uh, what else are people eating besides just wings? Yes, yeah, so yeah, 640 wings um, per person would be quite,
0: quite a bit, <laughs> uh, but okay. So yeah, people are also um, eating pizza. So they were expecting about 2 million pizzas, uh, which is actually the number that uh, Domino's had predicted it would sell. And Men's Journal predicted about 325.5 million gallons of beer would be consumed. And also, interestingly, it was thought that about 58.4 million dollars would be spent on
1: avocados. Ah, so maybe you're contributing to that. Are you dipping your nachos in some guacamole, Jesse? <laughs> I actually have to admit, I did, I don't even have nachos this year,
0: but oh no, <laughs> but I do like them in general.
1: What about ribs? I feel like ribs are also pretty common as well.
0: Uh, indeed, yes. Um, the estimate was about um, ten million pounds of ribs. And about $227 million worth of potato chips, um, 3.8 million pounds of popcorn. Um, The the popcorn number actually surprised me because I didn't really think of it as a a football snack for some reason. But I guess people like that too. Um, And then finally, cheese. So they were estimating that 88 million pounds of cheese was expected to be consumed. Now, I was wondering if that estimate included the cheese on all those pizzas, um, but, but pizza was not mentioned in the food and wine article that the cheese statistic came from. But it, it seems like it still could have been included. I'm not,
1: I'm not quite sure about that. Everything seems to be in millions from the list that you just rattled off. It yes. definitely sounds like watching the Super Bowl at a viewing party would be a lot more fun since there's just so many more possibilities when it comes to food. But anyway, you watched the game without having the nachos. So how was the game itself? <laughs> uh, I actually, I enjoyed the
0: game. The Patriots won 13-3, um, making it, as already mentioned, Tom Brady's sixth Super Bowl win as a quarterback. And then the coach, Bill Belichick's um, sixth Super Bowl win as the coach. Um, though though some did not find the game particularly exciting, um, there actually were still some records broken. So I'll just, I'll name a few of those. <laughs> so, um with the, the total combined points scored of 16, it was the lowest scoring Super Bowl, uh, which I'm laughing to myself just because that at least in part contributed to why people didn't find it that exciting. Um, just the with fewer touchdowns, actually only one touchdown was was scored. Um, it just it wasn't as exciting on the offensive side. Um, it was the fewest points scored by the winning team, which was 13 by the Patriots. And then the fewest... The fewest points scored for, the, um, for any team. This was actually a record that was tied by the LA Rams with, um, with only three points. And the, So Tom Brady, at an age of 41, was the oldest starting quarterback of the winning team. And Bill Belichick, at an age of 66, was the oldest head coach of the winning team. Uh, the Rams punter, uh, Johnny Hecker, had the longest punt in a Super Bowl, which was 65 yards. Uh, which was quite impressive, and um, and then finally Julian Edelman had the most receptions in the first half, and he had seven receptions. He had he had a, a great game.
1: So I, I, I per- all of these numbers pale in comparison to the millions and millions that you were talking about before when it came to. <laughs> I know that's,
0: <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I personally enjoyed the game. Um, I, I thought um, it was a well defended game on both sides. So um, so it was interesting. Um, but, but now, not to go on too many tangents, but, um, but Valentine's Day just happened. So um, since we were looking at the, um, the Super Bowl food statistics, I was curious about um, kind of the way candy sales and um, just sales in general go around, um, around Valentine's Day. So uh, Susan, do you have a, a favorite Valentine's Day treat?
1: I like anything with hazelnut and chocolate. And it doesn't have to be Valentine's Day. I'll happily have those in combination any time of the year. But I did get a huge thing of Ferrero Rocher's this Valentine's Day for myself. Now I just got to make sure I don't eat it too fast. Uh So does that mean, do you like Nutella? I love Nutella. But when it comes in a jar, I feel like I would have no control. I would just spread it on everything. So I do not buy Nutella, even though I know for a fact I would love it.
0: (laughs) it, uh, It's quite delicious. Um, Well, so an annual survey was carried out by the National Retail Federation and Prosper Insights and Analytics. um, And they reported that on average, people will spend $161.96 on Valentine's Day related items. Apparently, this was a 13% increase from last year.
1: Wow, that's a lot of money spent on Valentine's Day. I guess the economy is truly doing well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I, um, that seemed like a lot to me as well. And I'm actually more in favor of those just, you know, the the $1 box of candy hearts. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, apparently total spending was expected to be around um, $20.7 billion dollars.
1: Oh, for candy hearts alone.
0: Oh, no, I should clarify. I, I, in total, um, spent oh, okay. on Valentine's Day. Yeah.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, candy hearts are certainly popular. I, I used to love them as a kid as well. And, and this year, did you know the sweethearts almost disappeared? That's the iconic brand of candy hearts that we, or I remember from my childhood.
0: I, I actually, I did not know that um.
1: Well, the good. company that makes them, Neko, they actually went bankrupt, and um, for a while there was some news circulating about, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There may be no candy hearts this year. The rights did end up getting bought by a different company, uh, but they're not going to have the same sort of um, signature sweethearts until 2020, uh, but at least they're not the only company that makes candy hearts, even if they are the most iconic brand.
0: Yeah, because it would be a very sad Valentine's Day if we didn't have our little candy hearts available. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how we convey lovely messages to each other. Exactly. <laughs> so was there anything about how many people celebrate Valentine's Day?
0: Uh, yeah, actually, they reported about um, 51% of Americans were planning to celebrate this year. Um So while it's over half, it's still a decrease from last year, which um, was 55%. And then actually back in 2007, it was 63%. So there's kind of this downward trend.
1: Huh, that's interesting. So fewer people celebrating, but the expenditure is up. The economy is really, really doing well. (laughs) Yeah, and... uh, and actually, they
0: report too that a large portion of the total expenditure is um, is spent on pets. So they um, were estimating that 886 million dollars was going to be spent on on pets. This, wow. uh, this year, yeah.
1: Well, people love their pets. <laughs> yeah,
0: they, they certainly do. <laughs> and um, okay, so I'll just go through some other um, ways people are are spending money on Valentine's Day. So. Um, about uh, $3.9 billion is expected for jewelry, um, $3.5 billion on an evening out, um, $2.1 billion on clothing, um, $1.9 billion on flowers, um, $1.8 billion on candy. So <laughs> the candy hearts must, must fall in there. Um, the $1.3 billion on gift cards and, um, and then finally $933 million on greeting cards.
1: Wow, that's quite impressive and quite interesting, too, now to juxtapose spending on Valentine's Day versus consumption for the Super Bowl. Yeah, pretty cool. Jesse, I don't know about you, but I'm about to get started on introducing confidence intervals in my introductory statistics class.
0: Oh, exciting. Um, So we'll actually be covering this in a few weeks, um, I think right before our spring break in March.
1: Awesome. And um, as you guys know, our listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, confidence intervals are probably one of the first perplexing ideas to grasp in interest statistics. I remember when I first learned about them in AP statistics many, many moons ago, (laughs) the (laughs) interpretation of a confidence interval just felt like this legally statement I'd have to memorize. And when I write something on, on a test or on a homework assignment, if I were one word off, it's like I'm stepping off a cliff and falling into an abyss.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting too because it confidence intervals don't quite mean what what people think they want it to mean, and I'm being car- very careful with my wording here. It also doesn't mean what um some people want it to mean, but that's a different discussion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's very clever and punny, Jesse. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, now that we're on the other side, um, you know, I think personally, at least I've thought a lot about how we can make confidence intervals as intuitive as possible so that our students hopefully don't feel the same way um, about, you know, confidence interval statements being these jumble of words that have to be stated just so, Um, and hopefully that they can learn to discern the right way and the wrong way um, to interpret these intervals and really just have a sense for what it means to be 90% confident. So on my desk, um, there's this favorite statistical education article that I just want to (laughs) frame. This is embarrassing, but um the thing is, it's just a really, really cute, short, snappy article that's called 25 Analogies for Explaining Statistical Concepts. And it was published by Behar Tal in 2013 in The American Statistician. And it's a set of 25 really short little analogies slash anecdotes that shine a light on some frequently misunderstood intro stats concepts. So here's a relevant one that pertains to a confidence interval, and it paints a really nice picture for what a 95% confidence interval really means. So in quotes, I mean, they say, it is like a person who tells the truth 95% of the time, but we do not know whether a particular statement is true or not. It paints a nice little picture, right?
0: It does. I actually, I love that. I had not heard that, um, that anecdote before, and I, I think that's great. I might have to use that in class. <laughs>
1: So let's play a little game just to drive home the point. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read 10 trivia questions, Jesse, And each of these has a numeric answer. But it's okay if you don't know the answer because instead of providing a number for each question, all you need to do is to write down a 90% confidence interval for your answer. Okay. So just as an example, if I ask what's the average distance from Earth to Mars in kilometers, um, you would just write down a range of values that represents your 90% confidence interval. So something like 1 million KMs to 12 million KMs, whichever that might wind up being for you.
0: Ah, uh, Okay. I think I can do that.
1: That's okay. Great. <laughs> And um, for all all the listeners who want to play along definitely have a sheet of paper ready number it from 1 to 10 So that you are prepared to write down 10 sets of intervals and we will get to scoring later So we'll we'll figure out just how good you are at calibrating your own confidence. So are we ready, jesse?
0: I'm ready. I'm kind of nervous
1: (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. No pressure All right, so let's go for it. Number one is the question you've just heard. What is the average distance from Earth to Mars in kilometers? Number two, what's the height of Denali, which is formerly known as Mount McKinley in Alaska? Oh, and I should give units for that. How about let's give it in feet, just to be clear. Number three, what's the minimum number of moves required to solve any Rubik's Cube? So from any orientation, what is the minimum number of moves required to solve it. Number four, what year was the first toothpaste tube invented? Not just toothpaste in general, but a tube of toothpaste. (laughs) Number five, how many men signed the Declaration of Independence? Number six, how many milligrams of caffeine on average are in a shot of Starbucks espresso? Number seven, what percentage of American adults is estimated to own a smartphone as of 2018? Number eight, what is the greatest amount of snow to fall in a single U.S. location over a 24-hour period in inches? Number nine, in 2017, how much beef did Americans consume per person on average? And we'll use pounds as the unit. And finally, number 10, as of February 1st, 2019, just a week or two ago. How many Bitcoins are there in circulation? Wow, the silence there is is a little deafening. It's like I'm doing a spelling test back in fifth grade.
0: (laughs) I feel like I'm taking a test. I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) You're sacrificing yourself on behalf of our listeners and we thank you for it, (laughs) Jesse. It's my pleasure. All right. So uh, that makes 10. And uh, for any listeners who thought maybe I was going a little too fast, feel free to rewind. Um, And just so you know, if you felt like the question wasn't stated so clearly, right, you should just build that uncertainty into your confidence interval. But Jesse, you seem to be done. So maybe let's go through scoring at the stage. Yep. Sounds great. So I'm going to read the answers in order. And you're going to give yourself a point for each interval that contains the correct answer. So here we go. Uh, The first one, the average distance from Earth to Mars is 225 million kilometers. And number two, the height of Denali. Um, There's actually two different answers here because they had to re-measure Denali pretty recently. So Uh it's a very small margin. It's about 20,310 to 20,320 feet. So two, zero, three, one, zero, thereabouts. Number three, minimum number of moves to solve Rubik's Cubes, 20. Number four, first toothpaste tube was invented in 1873. Number five, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Number six, 89 milligrams of caffeine in a shot of a Starbucks espresso. Number seven, um, percentage of American adults owning a, a smartphone, 81%. And strangely enough, that's not even like the top country in the world. South Korea is the highest at 95%. Oh, wow. Yep. Maybe that's why uh, Samsung is so big. (laughs) (laughs) Number eight. um, Well, we just had a lot of snow in the States a couple of weeks ago. So this is going to bring back memories for some of us, Uh, but not quite the the biggest amount of snow to dump in a single 24-hour period was 75.8 inches. Um, it took place in the Rockies, Silver Lake, Colorado, April in 1921, so a long time ago. Number nine, um, beef consumption per capita is 56.9 pounds. And number 10, this is a large number, 17,516,000. Um, Bitcoin's on February first, and that is it. So, how did you do, Jesse? I didn't do as bad as I was
0: thinking I was going to do. Uh, I got six correct.
1: That's actually pretty good. No, <laughs> that's that's definitely really good, Jesse. Yeah, I'm so I'm not good with these sorts
0: of like scale type questions. But um, so I, if I if I even got three right, I was going to be happy. So <laughs> <laughs> so sixty <laughs> percent.
1: No, it's, it's, it's fantastic, um, but definitely this is one of those things that when I use this activity in class, the biggest thing that people are left with is this feeling that they are just grossly overconfident, right? That, that they think they have the right confidence levels in mind, and they wind up scoring much, much lower. Like, it's not unusual for my students to have scored threes and twos, so, mm-hmm. so six in comparison is very much better.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now the issue with overestimation of confidence is that you kind of wind up with these margin of errors that are too small and um, and and I guess in a sense this activity isn't necessarily helping you directly understand confidence intervals better, but kind of gives you a good feeling for how that confidence level ties into your personal uh, belief of things. So of course, in theory, if you had done this perfectly and if you were perfectly calibrated to your your confidence level, then you should get about 9 out of 10 of your intervals covering the true answers.
0: Okay, so um, so to bring this back to, let's say, like an intro stat setup, if some survey discovers a 90% confidence interval for the population mean hours of sleep that each college student gets, um, let's say it was between 6.7 and 9.2 hours, uh, what it means is that 90% of intervals obtained in such surveys with the same sample size are expected to capture the true population mean.
1: There we go. That's our statistics lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Making a little connection to this exercise, if you ask 10 people independently to conduct the survey of, of hours of sleep, right, on a random subset of the population, and they each come up with an interval, you would expect 9 out of 10 of those intervals to capture the true mean.
0: So there's, um, there's a way to kind of game this trivia quiz, though, isn't there? Like, um, let's suppose I wrote down negative infinity to infinity for the first nine questions and then made my last interval obviously wrong, like negative five to negative four, um, then I'd get
1: 90%. Jesse, I'm so glad you're not that kind of person, though you are aware of the strategy. But indeed, we have to prevent sneaky students from gaming the system like that, right? I yeah. suppose we can fix this by throwing in an extra couple of questions if we need to. And then we can randomly sample 10 of the 12 questions a score. I don't think they can game it that way anymore it's at least harder. <laughs> it is. So if you're an instructor interested in doing this sort of thing for class, um, self-plug, shameless self-plug, there is a paper that I co-authored with Nick Reich and Nick Horton on this activity. And um, so there are some details about how you can use it in the classroom. It's not very much more detail than you need from what we've already given in this podcast, but I will link it on the episode notes for the website.
0: Sounds great. In a previous episode, we discussed several places for getting data science news. So we thought today we could also provide a few places to find some some data sets.
1: Sounds good, Jesse. This is actually exactly the time of year when some students might be looking at ideas for projects in a data analysis class or for senior theses. Um, So it's definitely a good chance or a good time for us to discuss some popular data sources.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, So one option um, is produced by Jeremy Singer Vine, who is a data editor for BuzzFeed News, and he sends out regular emails containing just a variety of data sets he comes across. Um, The email series is called Data is Plural. For example, this past week, some of the data sets in the email were, um, so the title of it was Oklahoma Prisoners, and the description that was provided is, um, in, in the course of investigating why Oklahoma's female incarceration rate is so high, the Frontier and the Center for Investigative Reporting obtained a decade's worth of state prison data never before analyzed by the state itself and the data includes information about each prisoner, their prison sentence, their entries and exits from um, Department of Corrections Supervision. And so there's a link to the data and one one can work with that. Um, Another interesting data set from the recent email, it was titled Advice Sought. And it's, uh, it's about 30 years of American anxieties. So um, the, an organization called The, the Pudding gathered 20,000 questions posed to the legendary advice columnist uh, Dear
1: Abby. And uh, another source is Kaggle.com. And um, some of our listeners might also be, might already be pretty familiar with it. It's a website that contains a lot of data sets from a diverse range of disciplines. Um, Anybody can contribute to it, which is why it is so diverse. Um, And you can often get more than just a data set there because every data set has its own little public forum where others can ask questions and show off their data visualization slash analysis prowess with other data enthusiasts.
0: And then an older but still popular source for data is um, the UCI Machine Learning Repository, um, which has just a bunch of data sets categorized by things like um, the default method type, like um, classification, regression, clustering, um, the attribute type, you know, categorical, numerical, or mixed, and um, the the area that
1: is represented, such as life science or engineering or a variety of others. And some students might be uh, interested in finding data sets that are more local. So for example, you might want to study crime or real estate or um, secondary education uh, outcomes in your local community. And a lot of city governments have now begun open data initiatives such as Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and even New Haven where we are. So you might just Google city name, your city name, open data to pull up your local government's website for these sorts of data.
0: And also not too long ago, Google Google released a data search which is um, toolbox.google.com backslash um, dataset search that actually puts uh, sorry that actually pulls from multiple sources um, that we've discussed here. and you can think of it like a search engine for data. So you can type in a keyword for the you know the kinds of data you're interested in and then it provides a link to matching data sets. Um, there are also good um, there are other good sources of data um, many that are specific to, to subject areas, like if you're interested in exoplanet data, there are some known sources for that. But, um, but if you know of other good sources of data, um, please feel free to email us with this information because we'd be happy to expand this list in the future.
1: Absolutely. Maybe someday we'll include a little section on our website that just keeps a running tally of good data set sources. Oh, that's a great idea.
0: Thanks for listening to Data
1: If you have any suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes bytes with a Y.
0: And if you want to see
1: the numerous
0: articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io.
1: Till next time.